the matter of the people of the state of California versus Orenthal James Simpson, case number BA09. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Welcome to Doom to Fail, the podcast where I reveal a new issue I have every single week. I'm Fars. I'm joined here by my co-host, Taylor. Hi, Taylor. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? You don't sound well. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I think I have that respiratory virus RSV thing. Um, mm-hmm. And it's um, every week. There was There's something going on every single week. Two weeks ago, no electricity. A week ago in Florida. This week, Ugh. RSV. Um, next week, I'll probably get hit by a truck. We'll see. But... Well yeah good times no don't, don't, don't things come in threes maybe you're over it maybe that's it maybe that is it yeah, yeah that's so, a really good point yeah it's yeah. all it's all uphill from here i think you're fine yeah um so yeah on on that note uh i will say my drink for today is tea and honey because yes i need it that's a good one that's good for you you do need that I apologize i'm sniffling a little bit too so apologies for all the sniffles mine are allergy related i think but um, we're going to stuffle a lot during this episode, I imagine. So far, I know you're going to go first, but just to get us prepped, my drink is, um, once again, circling back to our episode one, we're going to go straight vodka because we're going to talk about some Russians. So we will get to it when we get to it, but I'll let you go first. Lovely. And I'm going to start out. I think I can start out by saying congratulations to our good friends, Beth and Jay, who oh, I just saw that yesterday. Who are engaged? It seems like it's. It, it seems like it, I mean it's been a week, so it feels like it's public enough now to where we can actually say stuff. So congratulations, guys! Oh, really congratulations! We love you guys so much. So cool. That so is cool. gonna be a fun, fun wedding. Oh my god, I can't wait. Yeah. Um. Okay. So hold on one sec, Taylor. Faraz okay. is pausing to cough, and go yell at his dog. That's what's happening right now. I'm looking at Barza's office. He has a white chair, which is very, very brave. He's back. And I'm back. Great. Okay. I narrated while you were gone. What'd you say? You'll you'll find out when you listen to it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So today's kind of a special episode on the true crime front because it's kind of a double whammy. I'm going to be discussing two different types of relationships that were doomed to fail. One is a romantic relationship between our main antagonist of the story. And the other is a father son type relationship that was also doomed to fail. Ooh. I know. Double whammy day. The key to dominate. The key to dominate. No, go ahead. So sorry to interrupt you, Fars, but I forgot to tell you that I have a note for you. I know I'm personally not taking notes, but um, I have a note from you. Just kidding. Um, from my husband wanted to hear more of the of the gross stuff. He said, "I want to hear the gross stuff." So, well, unfortunately, <laughs> this one doesn't. Uh, well, then tell him to stay tuned next week. I have a pretty good one for next week. This one's gonna okay. be pretty like slapdash robbery style stuff going okay. on. So, um, that one, me and you are aligned there. Okay. So the key denominator of both of these failed relationships is a singular asshole named John Allen Muhammad. Taylor, does that name ring a bell? No. Okay. Maybe later. Not yet. You may also know them, him, them, by their 
media branded name, either the Beltway Sniper or the DC Sniper. You okay? Yes. Yeah. Um, this is this is such... not that doesn't sound like slapdash robbery. It sounds like horrible horrible murder. i know but I, I know but i didn't know how to like say it without giving away what <laughs> okay great you're great um so this one's like this was like a super meaty topic there's so many moving pieces to it i could have probably researched this for like a solid week and still not have gotten to everything that was going on here there's so many yeah. details a lot of things going on. People are moving between different states, different countries, different people coming in and out of everybody's lives. I'm really doing like the top level version of this. I'm going to reference a podcast that was a, a, a part of my sources for this later on. Um, it's called um, You're Wrong About. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they're still active really because I know that there was like the, the team kind of stopped doing the shows together. Like I highly recommend checking them out, especially for their episodes on the DC Sniper case because they did it in – I think it was four parts, probably some around eight to 10 hours worth of content just on this. I'm going to wrap this up in 30 minutes. So obviously there's a lot that I'm going to be leaving out. So yeah, I think I listened more. to an entire series called the DC sniper. Yeah. 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 Uh, on you're wrong about. No, it did a different one. Like the, the podcast was like a called DC sniper. It was like deep dive into it. Yeah. So much, there's a lot. so many details. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the other party to this crime was, I'm just going to go ahead and, call him a child his name is lee boyd malvo and i'll start at the top by addressing one part of this that based on how this was framed in the media so this was always framed in the media as terrorism i looked up the actual formal definition of terrorism and the definition of it is the intentional use of violence and fear to achieve political or ideological aims the events we're discussing started five months after september 11th mm-hmm. So at that point, nearly everything was called yeah. terrorism. If you I remember, agree. Taylor, like this was around the time that the anthrax thing was going on too. Yep. Mm-hmm. Everyone was scared. I mean, obviously, you know, yeah. I feel like that. And then I had it. I mean, I was in I was in New York on nine eleven, but I was in a bubble. I was in college, and I like didn't know anything about the world really, and I hadn't even really like defined terrorism at all. You know, like, I wasn't aware of everything that was going on in the world until then you know so and then i was scared yeah yeah so i felt like i feel like people were like telling me that like my guy friends were going to be drafted you know like we were who knew? there's all these rumors and like weird shit going on so yeah everything was terrorism then i remember we talked about the what you being in new york on 9-11 you seem to have gotten exposure that me being in texas definitely did not get yes. um so that's awful in its own way but the um, I'm I'm gonna I, I bring up the terrorism thing because I'm gonna I'm gonna put an alternate point on this and say that it was not terrorism because this actually was not ideological or politically motivated in any way. We actually know why John in particular did what he did, and I'm gonna frame this as John doing it because this is very Charles Mansony where he like he controlled things. I mean, he was controlling a child, so like he was the antagonist in all of this. I'm going to get into his motives at the end, actually, because they're so stupid. It'll, it'll blow you away. I'm going to go through all this and then you'll, I'll get to the motive and you'll say, that was it. That was the Ugh. plan. And it was like, all these people died for this. It's going to be kind of shitty to say. The, the other part of the whole terrorism piece was, A, it made better headlines. And also, 
they kind of had to call it terrorism because they really, really, really wanted to put John to death when they caught him. And they did. Spoiler mm-hmm. alert. So, I mean, it's been like 12, 12, 12, 10, 12 years. So if you don't know by now, John Alan Muhammad was put to death. That Well, also, never mind. You, you, I, I want to come back to it, but like you, you keep going. But that, that, that's, a, that's a link between our, being put to death is a link between our stories today. So continue. Yes. Um, so I'm going to start with John and I'm going to say that like when I, as I was learning about this guy and reading about him, he really reminded me of Donald Trump, mm. like in the sense that if he's not right or if he is challenged in any way, he doesn't understand how to deal or cope with that. Like he just yeah. goes megaton on whatever is in his way. Like, like taking a Sharpie and changing the way path of a hurricane. I was just talking about that last week when I was at that conference in Florida, and I was like, that was my favorite moment of the Trump presidency. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you don't know everything. Oh, my God. So, but, yeah, totally. I can't imagine having someone like that, like, as your dad or as your husband. Like, you'd just be like. You just give up. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah, like, he goes, he goes megaton in any situation. And there's a specific reason why he goes megaton in this situation in the, in the D.C. Beltway area. This all goes over a span of about eight months. It actually doesn't even start in D.C. We'll get into, like, where it actually begins. It culminates in D.C., and that's why we're kind of, we kind of reference it that way. Um, but much like every morning I cover, like I mentioned, the motivations on why he does what he does turn out to be ultimately incredibly stupid and don't actually he doesn't achieve his goals which good he shouldn't right i'm not going to go much into the john's early life other than some details that will become relevant later on john was actually born with the last name williams he changed his last name after joining the nation of islam i should know and i don't know if you know this taylor but the nation of islam is listed on the southern poverty laws website with a hate group designation there's a lot of the material that I read out there that comes up later on in John's life as he becomes more and more indoctrinated that has to do with ethno purism. I don't know what, what you'd call yeah. it. Just like like anti-race. It, it was it's all bad. Like it's none of it's like none of it mm-hmm. cultivates like a mind that is like full of butterflies and you know uh, rainbows. Like it cultivates a right. mind of like everybody's the enemy. Fuck everybody that's not me. And I have a question that I feel like don't want to make sound wrong but did he did that happen in, in prison i feel no. like it didn't okay because i feel like people convert to islam in prison and get radicalized no no this came about because of the second point i'm going to bring up which is his um second wife mildred <laughs> who seems to be a great woman and she ran across the nation of islam and really liked the clean living aspect of it less the ideological components of it and um brought john into it as a result of that okay cool so yeah the second point is that he's been married and divorced twice and mildred is the biggest focal point of this story that's the second wife okay and the last point that it's that john was in the military for a very long time and he was actually given multiple awards as an expert marksman oh yeah not great for dc come in handy yeah We'll see. So let's go ahead and circle back to wife number two. So let's look, talk about a tortured woman. Um, Again, you're married to essentially Donald Trump, but like without the money, it's not. 
it's worth noting that most of what we know about John comes from Mildred. Like he's not very loquacious as it comes to discussing his own life. Mm -hmm. So we mostly know about her or him through her. In 1983, Mildred was living in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. She was 23 years old and working and just going to church. By all accounts, she's kind of a simple person, doesn't have much in the way of romantic relationship experience. And it's at this time she meets John at a grocery store and John asks her out. Um, when I was when I was single for like five minutes of my life, my friend told me to go to the grocery store and stand in the vegetable aisle to meet meet men. He was like, you'll know that they're responsible and that they care about themselves. And that's the best place to find guys. Is that where you met Juan? It's not, but I don't think that's a terrible idea. It's weird. Standing there. <gasps> How long did you stand there? I didn't do it. <laughs> I'm just saying that's not weird. I'm going to look at I'm going to look up a picture of Mildred. Mildred. Okay. Continue. I see her. So at this point, John teased this up with her as wanting to jump straight into a relationship. It kind of reminds me of like an old timey courting thing where this was a date to marry thing. And John mm -hmm. basically teased us up that way for Mildred as well. She's not very experienced in relationships. He kind of said, let's just get serious. So they get serious. From what John did tell Mildred over the course of their time together, he didn't have an easy childhood. His mom died when he was young and he went off to live with a grandfather who was apparently a piece of work. Mm hmm. He's a closed book from here on out. He doesn't like revisiting his past, but given what we learn about his character later on, all this kind of tracks. Mm -hmm. Shitty childhood. There's a lot of details there, but we'll just leave it at that. Okay. So red flag number one, as the relationship gets serious, Mildred learns that John is already married to someone oh. named Carol. Boo. <laughs> he has two sons. I don't get this. I don't... Maybe, maybe I just don't have as much time as other people. But carrying on one relationship is hard enough. Carrying a relationship with children is harder. Yeah. Carrying a relationship with children and then a side relationship is how do you have the mental? Maybe I'm lazy. That's what it is. Maybe I'm yeah, no, you lazy. need to really commit to it, I think, is, is part of it. Yeah. And is there like a what? Okay. Nowadays, just for our listeners, is there a way to check if someone's married? I guess I feel like are people not telling people they're married? Like, can I you mean, do a full background check on someone when they pick you up at the grocery store? I mean, I would. There's got to be other signs, right? Is there an indentation on their wedding ring finger? Uh, like, poor Mildred. Yeah, seriously. Um, yeah, she learned all this through a friend. She confronts John, who explains the marriage was falling apart. She buys it, and the relationship carries on. There's so many details between these two facts, all of which make Mildred sound like a saint and John like he should be very grateful to be with her. But yeah. whatever. She gets back with John. A lot of interesting things happen here, and then ultimately Mildred breaks up with John. This is before Good. they're married. Oh, Late so they get married. So they get back together. Ooh. Exactly. Uh, he, yeah. Later, he convinces her to get back together, and then in 1988, they get married. So, did he get divorced? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Okay. The, the, Carol, the Carol relationship ended. Okay. However, it ended. Okay, so they're married now. Mildred is pregnant with John's child and learns that John is cheating on her with a 19-year-old named Danielle. How old is John? At this point, John would be in his mid-30s. Yeah. 
uh he's been apparently seeing her for six months again i don't understand how like god i'm just i don't am i like i'm doing things like how do you have the strength and the energy to do this and like and like planning a wedding in the middle of that (laughs) it's also hard yeah doing a prenatal care and it's a 19 year old so you know that it's probably not just like dinners every now and then you probably got to go to some shows like (laughs) i don't get i don't get it but mildred learns about this and invites danielle over to the house to confront john there's a lot of details i'm glossing over she doesn't invite her over she goes and picks danielle up she calls danielle goes over to the house picks her up brings her back to her house to confront john oh my god i love mildred I know. I'm, also lo- I'm looking at her picture this whole time and she just looks awesome so i'm just like imagining her being mad and she just looks so cool she has like a beautiful headscarf on and all of her photos and she looks she just she's she, like a boss I, she turns out okay i think at the end of the story from these pictures of her and so i'm just like yeah good on you mildred Continue. yeah it's hilarious so like john comes home danielle is in the kitchen mildred is like what what you know john's like what's for dinner so like, go in the kitchen you'll find out you go to the kitchen and <laughs> sees danielle this is incredible so also <sighs> in the middle of all this one of john's friends james apparently he was supposed to go pick up lotto tickets for for james and so james came over to the house in the middle of all this to pick up his lotto tickets he's sitting in the, like, the living room like I just keep picturing this guy, James, like, what's going on? Like, who What the hell did I just walk into? Yeah. He probably thought he'd come over and get some, like, leftover dinner. Um, anyways, lo- they hash us out. John says, I'm over it with Danielle. Sorry, Danielle, we have to break up because here's my six-month pregnant wife that I have to stick with. Um, and then, apparently, James drives Danielle home. <laughs> <laughs> what a day for james did he win the lottery is he doing okay <laughs> we don't know I, I i did think i was like this could actually be kind of a meet cute if um <sighs> if james had capitalized on it but i guess oh he my didn't. god so funny um anyways they end up having a kid his name is little john little i know not little they later have a second child a daughter named selena uh, and in general, it just seems like John mostly ignored the responsibilities of being a good husband, and Mildred kind of was on her own to raise the kids and mind the house. Because also throughout all this, it seems like implicit that John is also just cheating on Mildred constantly. Is so it a job? So sort of, sort okay. of. They start a business together where John's apparently really good with cars, and he would just go around and fix cars. But like that's also how he would end up Meet being people. with women. Yeah, I mean that's how you do it. It's not that he's superhuman. You just ignore your responsibilities, and then you right, have like to... during the workday yeah. while you're stopping by at multiple women's houses. Yeah, there's also like just kind of hilarious, but like weird side stories going on here about John's behavior. So one time, apparently, he went to the Salvation Army and just brought home some random dude he befriended there and said that this guy's gonna be living with him. Like weird. It's it sound I wrote down this sounds like something Homer Simpson would do. It kind of <laughs> is though. Like, like it's like he just shows up with some random right. dude. Um and so obviously it's kind of implicit at this point that John is in some capacity emotionally abusing Mildred. Mm-hmm. He seems like someone who just can't handle any lack of control. But it's a weird kind of abuse. It's not like physical beatings. It's not like just constantly screaming at her. It's just, it's abuse done by henpecking the shit out of her. 
Mm-hmm. It was also like I said before, like it's also clear, like she's also aware that there's cheating going on at this time. Like he's doing everything to make her feel like a second class citizen in her own home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Talks about everything, the food, how she raised the kids, pretty much anything that would come up, he would find a reason to just uh, critique her about it. Mm-hmm. John suggests that they divorce at this point which by all accounts devastates mildred she's invested Hmm. a lot in this yeah and she thinks about it and then ultimately decides yeah okay that's probably a good move we should probably should do this he didn't expect that he wanted her to say of course we're not gonna like i love you you're so great like again psychological bs yeah right uh doesn't work so he they do some couples counseling and ultimately it's just decided that like this isn't mildred mildred puts her foot down at this point it's like i'm not doing this anymore we're 100 done he does a bunch of shit because he lacks control he does a bunch of shit to make the divorce as bad as possible for her mm-hmm. not providing enough support for the kids and they also don't have a formal child custody arrangement in place so they would just swap the kids back and forth there was a story here that John came to the house one day and saw the cupboards were full of food. And this might've been what set him off because he thought that she was sleeping with somebody else. And that guy was providing for them because mm-hmm. he wasn't because right. the money that he was providing wasn't enough to fill the cupboards full of food. That was what happened. One of her friends came over to the house and saw that Mildred had lost a bunch of weight and mm. was like, we're handling this right now and went to the store and bought her whatever she needed. That's what ended up happening. Yeah. But the idea is that the thought process was that he thought he thought he lost that other element of control over her, which was like, I can control what you can actually eat, which is an insane way to think about humans. And yeah, that's kind of what set him off. Mm-hmm. So around this time, she lets him have the kids for the regularly scheduled custody thing, and he keeps them. And at the same time, empties their joint bank accounts completely. Oh, no. Yeah. I watched a, a recent Unsolved Mysteries, I think, about... Um kids who are kidnapped by a parent and it was really sad you know like one parent just like takes the kids and leaves the country or just disappears and the other parent you know never finds them or knows where they are but can't go because it's dangerous and things like that so super sad and scary yeah apparently that's the most common way kids get kidnapped i didn't know that i was i found that out researching this so there's a lot that goes on here around like john calling and harassing mildred and yada 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 mildred ultimately she, whatever i'm not gonna go into the details but ultimately mildred decides that she has to go live in a woman's shelter a she has no money and b yeah. she feels threatened by john and mm-hmm. his existence she ends up living under an assumed name and going to live in this shelter all this okay. is going on in washington state okay so at this around this time um Mildred's mother gets a house in Maryland, um, which for those that aren't familiar with the geography of the area, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, it's all one thing. Like people who work in D.C. live in Maryland. They live in Virginia. They bounce mm-hmm. around back and forth. Like it's basically like one giant metro area. And it's mm-hmm. just, it's intentionally designed that way. So that's a little bit of foreshadowing about what's going to come. Going back to John and the kids, when John got custody that day, he almost immediately put them on a plane to, to Antigua. This will become relevant again shortly, but the simplest version of what was going on here is that he put the kids on this plane, they go to Antigua, and then he basically makes a living forging documents for Jamaican immigrants who are trying to immigrate to the U.S., and that's basically his life. He just goes around 
forging documents, taking care of the kids, and that's kind of it for the time being. Okay. So let's go ahead and segue to the other main character of the story. Enter Lee Boyd Malvo. So Lee That name is awesome, by the way. It is, right? I feel like Malvo is there is the word Malvo in Harry Potter somehow? I feel like it's like someone's name or it's like Draco Malfoy moved around or it's like Tom Riddle or whatever. Just it feels very like a very Harry Potter name. It does. I'm gonna. I went down a rabbit hole in my mind of who that could have been. Um, no, he, he sounds like he designs very, very nice like gator shoes. You know. Yeah. Okay. It's a very cool name. Mm-hmm. So Lee was born in 1985 in Jamaica to a woman named Una. Una was. I mean, I'm not going to go into a lot of details. She sounds pretty shitty. She sounds like a terrible mom. She just beat the hell out of this kid and just abandoned him constantly. You look at pictures of Lee, which I would encourage you to 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 try that. Um, to me, he just constantly has the eyes of like a scared kid, like an unloved, scared child. There's a lot of bounce around that happens here. Una moves to St. Martin, leaving Lee at home with neighbor. Like he's just abandoned constantly. I mean, she's doing it to make money and support the family, but like, don't just leave your kid with random strangers. Yeah. There's there's weird stories that happen. It's I mean I don't know. I'll, I'll do this for Juan because he wants to know the gross stuff. At one point, Lee like befriends a cat who comes over to the house, and Una makes him beat the cat Ooh. because like he can't have a cat. And then like he beats the cat until it's bloody, and then the cat finally goes away. And then anytime the cat came over, he had to beat him. Like it's just why do this? Why? Like what is that's terrible. Yeah. yeah. Um. So long story short is that eventually between Jamaica, St. Martin, so on and so forth, Una and Lee end up in Antigua. Did you find a picture of Lee? I did, yes. What did you think? He, he he just looks, he looks like, I mean, so many of the pictures, he's just it's like when, I guess when the trial was, it's just a kid, you know, and he just, he looks very sad. He just looks like a sad kid. Yeah. I know he does bad things, but he does look very sad. He looks, he makes me sad. Yeah same yeah so like i said they ended up in antigua and all because of uno's job and wanting to make money there um yeah i i wrote here that if this was like a movie or a story about animals written by disney lee would just be like a bastard how nobody would adopt at the shelter like he's Aww. just he just wants i don't know it, it's it sucks so fortunes collide in Antigua because Una decides that she wants to immigrate to the U.S. And given John's side hustle or only hustle of forging documents, she takes Lee to see John. That's mm-hmm. where the two come together for the very first time. For whatever reason, Lee starts going over to John's to hang out. And, you know, it seems like it's a pretty tight-knit immigrant community there. Una tells Lee at one point that she basically left. She left for Florida. doesn't tell him. Like, this is a pattern. Like, she'll pick up mm-hmm. the phone, call him. He doesn't see her for a couple of days. And then she's like, I'm in another state, another country. Yeah. John figures out what's going on. And I don't know. It seems like it's almost out of, like, altruism that he goes over there and tells Lee to pack his things and come stay with him. Mm-hmm. So he finally gives him the thing that he wants, that father figure. So their dynamic is one where Lee kind of takes care of the house and the kids while John does whatever it is that he does. So he kind of takes on like a housewife, like approach to this, like as a yeah. like, year old or 12 year old. No, he's more old than that. He would have been like 13, 14, I think. But mm-hmm. um, John being a military guy, he just has this military mindset of you have to be stern, strict and disciplined. 
I only bring it up because when you're an aimless kid, I can see why that personality type would be alluring. Yeah. Like you'd want someone who takes charge, gives you comfort and safety when your whole life has been abused and cast aside by everyone who should have loved you, right? Yeah, totally. So ultimately, John is arrested for forging documents. John gets out of jail. By some accounts, he literally just walks out because it's easy living in Antigua. And then John, the kids, and Lee all get on a plane with forged documents and head to the U.S. So John takes the kids to Bellingham, Washington, and Lee goes to Florida to be with Una because Una, again, had left to go to Florida. I've actually been to Bellingham. It is stunning. It is one of – it is so beautiful. It, it is – I don't – what's the show I'm thinking about? Oh, my God. Andy Griffin, whatever that is. Andy show. Griffith? Yeah, what's that show? It's a, isn't it just Andy Griffith show? Yeah, it's very small towny. It's very yeah, small yeah. town and pretty. <laughs> Lots of breweries. Um, the Pacific Ooh. Northwest loves their breweries. So John moves into a homeless shelter with the kids, which is noted as odd by anybody who observes this because, for better or worse, homeless shelters don't really see a large influx of single men showing up with, like, a brood of children. Like, that's mm-hmm. a, that's kind of red flaggy right there. Yeah. Mildred had obviously reported the kids missing, and so when John applies for food stamps, the system flags this. They becomes Good. aware of, like, be on the lookout for a single guy with three kids. Yeah. Investigators start digging into this. They interview the kids, and they end up giving their real names, and the jig is up, and Mildred is reunited with the kids finally. Oh, good. Yeah. So at this point, I promise I'm not going to go into legal procedure this time. An emergency hearing is held for the custody of the kids, which to me is the pivotal moment for everything that happens hereafter. Mm-hmm. The judge give Mildred custody of the kids. Good, yes. John is pissed. What did he expect? For a guy who them? for a guy who needs control, this was a massive, massive breaking point. Yeah. This moment is basically what leads to everything that comes next. People who knew John would talk about how this moment is the moment that changed. Like he just stay up crying all night and like he just couldn't handle what was happening. What the fuck did he think was gonna happen? Oh, you seem like a great dad. I mean person who just kidnapped your children. He also thought he was a great husband, despite him taking his wife to death. So he didn't have the best logic. No. So yeah, because at this point he viewed Mildred as the one who made him kind of lose everything, which like okay but like, what were her alternatives not to fight for her kids not to try yeah. and get them back safely yeah at this point john goes back to the homeless shelter and he calls lee because he's lost everything and he's just grappling trying to grasp for whatever he can he calls lee and tells him to come up to washington this happens in october of 2001 are you okay yeah yeah, yeah. i'm just thinking continue what are you thinking when i'm making a weird face when you what why why do you ask me i'm fine <laughs> i was just thinking about this i was just thinking about you know the that john like calling lee for like helping you like this is a grown-ass man you know who's like going through emotional thing calling a teenager it's fucking weird it's weird and like i just was thinking about that because i was like that's like something that you teach your kids is like grown-ups don't need kids for help <laughs> you know like yeah. a grown-up should never ask if a grown-up asks you for directions like they're trying to kidnap you. Grown-ups don't need kids for help. Like, they can they, they can talk to other adults, you know? Like, they shouldn't have to reach out to a kid, line. so. Yeah. Yeah. If you can identify it. Lee would later mention that the pain he heard in John's voice about talking about his kids being taken away from him just kind of hit him a certain way. Like, he, mm-hmm. like, in a way that was like, man, I wish somebody 
cared about me that much. Right. That kind of a thing. So Lee looked at his situation and his mom and the abuse he faced with her. And then John, who had never been mean mean to him, and he made really the rational decision to leave his Mm -hmm. mom to go be with lee in bellingham yeah the story is basically lee called john uh to wire him money for a bus ticket which john did to get him up to washington from florida Mm -hmm. yeah so one thing i mentioned that podcast you're wrong about that i thought was really good was Uh they mentioned how sometimes a person can make an extremely bad decision for reasons that make perfect sense and that's yeah so this mm-hmm. i totally get why he did what he did absolutely his mom was not nice to him he doesn't have anything like solid in his life except this man who who was nice to him so taylor i'm gonna uh, sidetrack here i've been in situations before where i knew that if i let something play out the way it seemed like it was gonna play out mm-hmm. there would be dire consequences mm-hmm but for anybody else to care, the dire consequences would have to be realized. As opposed to mm-hmm. how do you take action before the thing you see playing out in your mind happens? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, you know, like, I'm not going to go into details about it here, but like I've definitely done things where it's like I knew that outcome was going to happen if I didn't take action, but I had yeah. no legal way of taking action. So I'm like, whatever, I'm just going to do whatever I got to do to make this thing not happen and yeah and that i thought about school shootings and how you know it's like oh well my 18 year old son who's a senior in high schools he's legally it's his property right to have a bunch of guns and it's just like there's times when you can see the outcome in your Mm -hmm. mind and it is okay to be like fuck the law and what that guy's property rights are or what they're like yeah (laughs) any rights are like you know what's going to end up happening if you don't Mm -hmm. do something but like you don't in a lot of cases most people think they don't have a choice they got to wait until the horrible horrible thing happens then everybody else right right that's what reminded me of this i'm like there's so many people that came in and out of lee's life who could have like i don't care that she's your mom like fuck her parental rights like she's a horrible horrible mom who keeps abandoning you and Mm -hmm. you're clearly a shattered shell of a child like just i'm gonna i'll just take the kid like i don't i don't know i don't know yeah it sucks yeah i feel like yeah that sucks i mean it feels like he well it feels like lee didn't have much of a chance because of that for sure and i don't know like i do know that i mean sometimes like even with like child custody things like you end up with a parent who's abusive or because they have you know more money or whatever in the yeah. better lawyer or something like that i mean it sounds like the best thing that happened for for john's kids is that they that Mildred got custody of them, even though that is the thing that like sparked John kind of going over the edge. I think it's still like good for the kids that they don't have to be with him anymore because he kidnapped them. And yeah. imagine like who, who knows what he was telling them also like about their mother and about the government, you know, like who knows what he was like, what he could have molded his kids to be. Yeah. That was probably yeah. the same idea. Yeah. Well, I bring it up here because going to the next part, he's on his way to Washington. This is kind of game over because mm-hmm. this next section I headline brainwashing because at this mm-hmm. point it's kind of like done. Like the 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 cast has been died. Is that the word? No, the die has been cast. Thank you. The die has been. 
<laughs> you gotta cast. you gotta have your cake and eat it too up. eat your cake and have it too you know whatever because <laughs> because Kaczynski, yes. yeah. Okay, so I I think under any circumstance, a, a healthy human probably isn't wired to kill a person unprovoked. Mm-hmm. There's a ton of brainwashing that starts happening here between John and Lee, like Lee or John brainwashing Lee. There's also another part of this that struck me about how how much time matters depending on the age that you're at. Like, I remember when I was in elementary school and thinking a year was the longest time I could possibly conceive of. Yeah. And you look at this situation, like, this is only, like, a year to a year and a half of Lee's life. But that's, like, a – that means he's, like, a fairly significant chunk. Like, his relationship with John is, like, a fairly significant chunk of his life. So he right. listens to him. Mm-hmm. So, again, like, I hate to, you know, excuse – find excuses for bad behavior. But, obviously, I feel for – Lee, given his background, his impressionability, his youth, and the fact that mm-hmm. he's just getting brainwashed by a psychopath, essentially. Yeah, 100%. So during this time, you know, like I said, John indoctrinates Lee on Nation of Islam stuff. Like, not, like, anything positive. Like, it's all, like, the negative stuff around, like, supremacy and whatnot. Um, they go to gun ranges and train his marksmanship quite a bit. One detail that I that I read that was amazing was that John would put up uh, targets that had Lee's own face on them that he had to shoot. What? Yeah. That is fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, they start forming this kind of father-son bond, but it feels like kind of like an abusive father-son bond of like, you have to listen unequivocally to what I tell you to do. Like there yeah. is no middle ground and mm-hmm. he gets that. Like that's exactly yeah. what, what Lee becomes to him. So let's get started with, the crimes so like i said the shootings didn't actually start in dc they escalated to they escalated from murders in washington which is where lee and john are this time mm-hmm. so back States, when right washington state yeah exactly okay. not dc so back when john was married to mildred mildred had a friend who stepped in and helped them with understanding basically like general accounting principles for businesses I have had a crash course on this and can tell you that it's not fun, but several things that I'll intuit from this experience, having done it myself, was it is a, it's like being explained like a toddler, how basic finance works Mm -hmm. (laughs) from somebody who actually understands it. And I can imagine John having a woman step in and explain this stuff to him was emasculating in some capacity. Yeah, totally. And then later, when the separation and custody battle was taking place, this woman took Mildred's side. So John had multiple reasons to like. He it sounds like he really simmered on how much he hated this woman. Mm-hmm. Her name is Isa. I keep saying this woman. Her name is Isa Nichols. Okay. So in February of two thousand two, Lee was told to go to this woman's house and shoot her in the head. Mm. Unfortunately for everyone, Isa's niece Kenya was at the house and opened the door. Lee shot her in the face and killed her. She was 21 oh, no. years old. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Again, I, there's so many of these. That I'm kind of just going to list them off. Mm-hmm. Because it's just someone shows up, gets shot in the face. Someone shows up. Like, it's just that over and over and over again. A month later, they go to Tucson, Arizona. A six-year-old man named Jerry Taylor was shot at long range on the golf course. Um, we don't know for sure who did this. But the reason it comes up is because... Lee and John were in Tucson at the time and 
John's sister lived near this golf course. And so the idea was it had to be these guys. In August, a man named John Gaeta was changing a tire that had been slashed by Lee in a parking lot in Louisiana. Lee came up from behind and shot him in the neck. The guy plays dead, Lee steals his shit, and then the guy runs to seek help, and he ultimately survives. September was a super busy month for them. The following is just bullet points. It all happened in September. They shot a guy named Paul LaRuffa, who was a pizzeria owner six times. He survived. An employee at a liquor store named Benny was shot but survived. Another liquor store employee named Muhammad was shot and survived. A 41-year-old employee of another liquor store was shot. This one was actually killed. They shot and killed someone named Hong M. Ballinger in Louisiana. Like they just like are going on a spree, right? This is just their their berserker spree mode. So this leads us from September into October, which is when they enter the DC metro area. Again, all this is gonna tie back to a motive, and it's all gonna sound really stupid. At the start of October, a 55-year-old man named James Martin was shot and killed in a parking lot uh, of a grocery store in Maryland. The next day, four people were shot and killed within a two-hour window of time in one Maryland neighborhood, and another was killed in D.C. proper. All of these shootings were done at distance with a high-powered rifle. At this point, John and Lee had moved into um, Virginia. They moved on in, into that territory, in that region. They shot a woman named Carolyn Sewell, who survived the shot to the chest somehow. They shot a 13-year-old on his way to middle school. They shot a man named Dean Harold Meyer while he was pumping gas. They shot a businessman named Kenneth Bridges and killed him while he was also pumping gas. And they shot and killed an FBI analyst named Linda Franklin at a Home Depot parking lot. It's just spree. Um, I think I like read um, some or saw something about this where like a woman who was at the gas station one of the guys was shot and she was like it's so confusing because you're like what the hell is going on you know it's like in in um is it in the jerk when he's like it's cancer exploding do you remember that oh yes (laughs) yes because i was trying to shoot him because like you're like well where's coming from and then the woman that the story that's like i feel maybe one of those guys that was shot at the gas station she was like she ran out to help him and she was like someone come help help me and everybody in the store was like no because we know that and the police were like we're not coming because we know that like someone is shooting randomly and they've already shot this place so they like didn't want to yeah. come but she was like trying to do it you're like because someone gets shot in front of you just pumping gas you're like it takes you to like a different reality you're like what is happening you know and you can just like be standing somewhere and get shot that's crazy yeah it's like anytime- scary so anytime something happens that like breaks the matrix you're like yes did that happen like what's going on what's going on yeah so it took five days for them to take action again like for them to start doing this again and on october 19th they shot a guy named jeffrey hooper in a parking lot of a steakhouse then two days later a bus driver was shot while just basically standing outside of the bus depot yeah they're on a i mean but, but like i hate to put it this way but like you're broke you have no money you live out of a car. I mean, this was probably the most exciting and interesting thing they could do all day is just go around finding people to shoot. Like, it's a horrible way to think about it, but like. Totally. I mean, I, I mean they probably, I don't know, I, you'll, you'll get to the motive, but I feel like they probably felt like they were doing like something, right? It was incredibly stupid. I'm, I'm oh. never going to lay off that. So you'll notice that obviously they're bouncing around quite a bit. And obviously a bus wasn't going to keep working for them to get from place to place, right? At this point, um, it's worth discussing the Blue Caprice. There's actually a movie about the shootings called just Blue Caprice. 
That's the car. Yeah, that's the car. It's a Chevrolet. It's a big, old-timey, clunky piece of shit. It was a 1990s model. Um, are you, do you know what these look like? I'm going to look it up. Yeah. 1990s. Yeah, it's, I don't know why, but for some reason, the car feels menacing to me. It's almost like Christine. Oh, yeah. Oh, I see it. Well, I'm look, I obviously see this blue Christine. It does look like... Yeah, I get it. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Old, that's, a, that's an odd color. I feel like I don't see cars like that. Right? So, fun fact, it used to be an undercover police car. Oh. Yeah, before huh. they bought it. So it was actually a strategically good buy for them because, for one, it was obviously cheap. I mean, look at it, you can tell it was cheap. For another one, it was a huge vehicle. Yeah. Because, like I said, like because they had no money, they were living inside the car, and then they would also just shoot people through a modified trunk that had a hole cut in it to oh allow a gun barrel to protrude. Whoa. How would you ever find them? Like, I'm, yeah. That That is like, it's so, it is so random that you're, like there, there is no, there's no rhyme or reason. Yeah, yeah, and, and look, I, I hate to give kudos for this, but this was actually like a pretty smart move. It means the bullet bullet casings never get lost, right? Like you shoot, oh, yeah. it, it stays in the car. You're always hidden, and you can make an incredibly quick getaway. Yeah. The fact that it was a blue Caprice was also kind of a problem for a while because when they shot that guy at the Home Depot, the parking lot. Someone stupidly lied about what they saw. They said they saw a white van flee the scene. So police <sighs> were on the lookout for a white van, which like, that's like one out of every five vehicles on the highway. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, I mean, don't get into one. Don't We've get already in. covered that. But like, Last but yeah, thing. why? but that's wildly different than a blue Caprice. So if you're looking for a white van, you're not at all in my direction. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, there's a sad story about how, like, at one, one point, the police found two guys in a white van. They were like, we got the guys, we got the guys. It turned out to be, like, two immigrants who were illegal, and they ended up getting deported. Like, oh, some, people, some people just want to be a part of a story. Like, they're such losers. They want to be, like, close to a story. Yeah. So it's like, I saw something. It's like, you didn't see shit. Oh, my shit. So let's get into the arrest. So five days after that last shooting on October 24th, the two were asleep in the car at a truck stop when police were tipped off by people who were at that stop. I'm going to, I label this part INS side quest because there is an INS component of this that comes in handy. I didn't mention this before, but at one point while John and Lee were at the homeless shelter in Bellingham, Lee got picked up by the INS for being an illegal immigrant. Okay. And because of this, he had his fingerprints taken. Ooh. At one of the crime scenes early on when they weren't using the rifle or using like a handgun, he'd used the, a handgun, like a pistol, to shoot someone and a partial print was found on the shell casing. Okay. They matched that against the INS database to Lee. So police go to his last known whereabouts, which is where he got picked up, which is in Bellingham at this homeless shelter. And the guy who runs the shelter tells them all about John. So... They look him up and realize he had a vehicle registration in his name because that was another part that was stupid. It was like he had all this forged documentation, but he registered right. the name. Yeah, like even I know not to do that. Right. If you if you don't have to forge documentation, do it for yourself at least. Yeah. Yeah. So it all matched this blue caprice, which is the, the only way they kind of came off of the white van narrative. This info, along with the car's license plate number, is immediately disseminated throughout the D.C. metro area. So D.C., Maryland, Virginia, all these folks had this information. Mm -hmm. And it's obviously picked up on scanners by the media outlet. 
And that's how people were able to identify this car in the license plate was because the media just spread this everywhere. But do they think that they do? Do they know that they're the snipers or are they just trying to pick up Lee because of immigration? No, no, they, this is all tied to the sniping case. They're, they're, okay. they're like, they're like, there's some, some correlation between these disparate murders. I also didn't get into this, but they started like doing this like BTK thing of like leaving like, you know, tarot cards and like just they yeah, started yeah, trying yeah. to do the like tying table. it all together, yeah. like the wet bandits. We know every house you guys <laughs> hit because bandits. you had the you left the water on every house. Yeah, that's exactly what they were they were going for. So they get a, they're arrested without incident, and I can only imagine what the interior of this car smelled like. Um, the trial began in 2003. John was found guilty and sentenced to death. Lee was also found guilty but sentenced to life. Other he's states, a child. he's a child. Well, other states were seeking the death penalty for Lee, but no. around this time, the Supreme Court had ruled in a case called Roper versus Simmons that it was against the 18th Amendment or the Eighth Amendment to execute someone for crimes they committed when they were under the age of 18. That took death off the table for Lee. So John was ultimately executed on November 10th of 2009. He made no final statement, and that was basically the end of his garbage life. One thing to note is that it actually does appear as though Lee did most, if not all, the murders. Hmm. That's why I said earlier, this is kind of like a Charles Manson situation. Where, like, John yeah. is the bad guy. For sure. But, but he like, didn't he actually did... do the thing. Interesting. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah, totally. Totally. The 18th Amendment is prohibition. I just looked it up. This was the 8th Amendment. Eighth Amendment. Okay, wait, what's the Eighth Amendment? Cruel and unusual. Ah, okay, thank you. No, yeah, I get exactly what you're saying. Like, he was the mastermind kind of grooming this young man who obviously should, you know, killed a shit ton of people. So, yeah, should be in jail, but yeah. Exactly. So, Lee, Lee is still in prison. He is now 37 years old. He has reached out to multiple family members of his victims and apologized for his behavior. In 2020, he got married, and he's been continue. Did you say you? Yeah, no, ladies. There's plenty of non-incarcerated people to marry. Just go to the produce section and go find one. Go to the grocery store. Find yourself a man, and stand have next one. To the kale. Don't. I mean, regardless of his grooming or in his apologies, like don't marry a man in prison. Don't send left to serial killers. I don't know what the appeal is, but yeah. <laughs> it goes without saying he's been denied parole continuously, and realistically, yeah. he's probably just going to stay in jail forever. Mm -hmm. um, so I kept teasing the motive. Taylor, yeah. what do you think the motive was? I don't know. Fame, guns, to get his kids back? <laughs> Those are my guesses. The motive was he wanted to kill Mildred, but he, he knew that if he went to kill Mildred, they would know it was him. Oh, so he was killing other people. So it would seem like a random thing. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's so dumb. Like he killed all these people or had them killed so just that he could... to circle back to Mildred and kill her eventually. Oh my God. And Mildred is fine. She's thriving. She's thriving. Yeah. Ugh, that is so dumb. Those poor people. Yeah. So that's the story. Like I said, look, I think that on Mildred's front, learning that he's married after you've been dating, like 
it was all a foregone conclusion that I thought. I, I think it was a foregone conclusion. This was he was a psycho. I mean, mm-hmm. I just think that naturally you're, you you got to be a psycho to be able to carry on that kind of narcissistic behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think Lee was kind of just doomed from the jump. Yeah, definitely. So, anyways, that's my story. Hopefully, my voice doesn't sound too. You sound badly. great. I don't think you do, but that's okay. super sad. Yeah. I'm glad I could. I'm glad I get to you. Womp womp. So, what do you have for us today, Taylor? Okay, well, I mentioned that our thread between our two is being executed and for crimes. So, we will talk about that. And I wanted to ask you a question, Fars. In the world right now, um, what are you afraid of? So, I, I have three things that are part of the story that are sort of evergreen existential threats that people are afraid of um i have a new one that i'm afraid of but right now is there anything like globally that you're afraid of globally that i'm afraid of Mm -hmm. global awfulness what could ruin the whole world i mean okay like obviously like a nuclear bomb going off that's it Ding, ding 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 that's the correct answer okay well there you go so today we're talking about three things that you should be afraid of one is communism but not really, because communism is just a red herring for other things. Two is nuclear war, which I am very scared of. And three is electric chairs. So, like, you're not probably going to die in an electric chair, but we'll talk about it and how awful it is. So those are three things that are scary. I'm also currently afraid of AI, just in general. Um, I'm kind of afraid of everything. So just wanted to put that out there. So, Taylor, do you think that if we were to go to war, that they would use, like, the other country would use nukes on Joshua Tree? I don't well okay I'll we'll talk about that in a second I don't think I'm far I'm I think I'm close enough that yes I think I'm fucked but I'll we'll talk about that okay. in a second okay so today we're going to talk about Julius and Ethel Rosenberg who are two American citizens who were killed in the electric chair for selling nuclear secrets to the Soviet Union I don't know if selling is the right word they gave them to the Soviet Union so some of our red flags for this couple they seem like a pretty normal couple. Like they, you know, loved each other. They had two kids. Um, they were pretty like, you know, innocent looking, innocent seeming. But the red flags are, you know, they're communists, card carrying communists in America in the 40s and 50s, which is not like a great thing to be because it is McCarthyism. People are mad at communists. And they went further than just, you know, attending rallies and wanting like a more socialist, equal society like a lot of young communists did um, because the actual red flag is they were spies. <laughs> so Being a spy is not good for your family, especially in this case. Some of the sources that I use, I listened to a podcast called Civics 101 about espionage and the Rosenbergs. I watched half of a documentary that their granddaughter made. She made it in the early 2000s. It's called Heir to an Execution. And I only watched half of it because she was very much like, they're innocent. I can't believe all this happened. And like, they're not innocent. Like, I know that like, Nobody wants their grandparents to be Soviet spies, but they were. It's, it's, a, w- it's a way cooler story than they're innocent. Like, I, I, I would. Yeah, it's like, who cares? It has no impact on you to, in today's. Like, in, like right it's now. over. I mean, yeah, I think it's kind of it's kind of cool rather than being like, let's exonerate them being like, yeah, they were spies. They did all this cool spy shit. It, it was bad. But yes. And um, I mean, I also watched an American Justice show on the Rosenbergs and then Wikipedia and ChatGPT for some 
filler. So that's those are my sources. But let's talk about who they were. So Julius and Ethel, um, they were, you know, a couple in New York City. Julius was born on May 12th, 1918. His parents were Jewish immigrant immigrants from Russia, pre-World War One. And they ended up living on the Lower East Side, which is an awesome neighborhood where I lived as as well it definitely has ups and downs and this is like a downtime for for new york city it's you know depression time it's it's not great um, but julius went to city college of new york he had got a degree in electrical engineering and he began to get involved into left-wing politics while he was in college and mostly like labor activism protests against the rise of fascism so all stuff that we're seeing over seeing now you know um people trying to unionize and not be fascist so similar times repeating itself. Um, Ethel was born Ethel Greenglass in 1915. She was also interested in the arts. She wanted to be an opera singer. By all accounts, she was really good at it, wanted to be like an actor or, or a singer, but ended up um, being a secretary. And she started to get interested in labor relations. And she met Julius when she joined the Young Communist League, where he was a leader. In like So is this not the point in time when it's dangerous to join the communists? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they knew yeah, what they were doing. They were agitators. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So we're coming up to the time when, you know, Senator McCarthy is doing the, like, the the Red Scare on, on, like, a federal level. And this is, like, in New York City. So they don't cross paths with him. But he definitely, you know, tainted the water for for being a communist, being, like, a bad thing. And there's, like, some, some like, stock footage, I think, in the documentary that I watched where, you know, there's like a communist parade and they're like join the communist party and people are like jeering at them. So it's like a thing. Um, it's also, wait, actually, this is actually kind of what I'm going to come up next is. So Julius and Ethel were married in 1939. She was 24. He was 21. And it was a hard depression time, crazy poverty. You see people on bread lines, like nobody has a job. So there's a lot of radicalizing for a lot of people. And communism was, attractive because it has the ideas of like an ideal society where everybody, you know, shares what they have. So there's no more starving people on the street. Wait, Joe, and, yeah. Can I, can I sidetrack you real quick? Of course. What do you think about communism? I think it's a good idea, but I don't think, I think you shouldn't have someone in charge who takes all the money, which is like what we're doing now with capitalism. But I do think that you should take care of each other. So I think, I, I mean, I'm, I feel like I would say more like democratic socialism, it makes more is more sense in practice, but I like the idea of not letting people starve and not having billionaires. Okay. What Fair do you enough. think? I think that it's a great concept if you completely negate human decision making and will and yeah, desire exactly. out of the equation. Yeah, because I was going to be someone who wants more or yeah. whatever. And like I do too. Like I don't want to, you know. Yeah, but I do like the idea of not letting people starve. If if we were if we were better, it would be a great concept. Yeah, exactly, exactly. People can't handle it. No. I think it's a good a good thing to say. Yeah, and so actually, I have a quote from J. Edgar Hoover about communism, and he said, "Communism is in reality is not a political party. It is a way of life, an evil and malignant way of life." It reveals a condition akin to disease that spreads like an epidemic. And like an epidemic, a quarantine is necessary to keep it from infecting this nation. So, um, which made me laugh also because quarantine is good, a good metaphor when it's on your side, but then 
we also like people don't want to quarantine when there's actually an epidemic. So yeah. that made me laugh a little bit. So they're in this place where they're idealizing young communists, dreaming of a socialist country, um, and they believed that the Soviet Union was the answer to this problem. So they really are like, they think it's perfect over there, and either they don't know or they don't see the bad things. So either they like didn't see all of the starving, like millions of people starved to death during the war, or they didn't see all the poverty and the things that are happening under under communism over there. So they just really think it's it's perfect. And, you know, in theory, I wrote, you know, in theory, it makes sense, but it doesn't work because people are awful. What we just talked about. Yep. Um, so they get married at the beginning of World War II. And almost right away, um, you know, the crime part of their story starts. So their case became a symbol for fear and paranoia around the Cold War, around communism. And you know, people, many of their supporters said that the Rosenbergs were kind of set up for political witch hunt. Um, it's been kind of a controversial case, you know, since since it happened. And we'll talk about exactly what that means. But there are, you know, despite all of the ongoing debate, and I'll just say this now. So like there's, there's some stuff that was released in the mid 2000s. So despite all the back and forth since their case for like 50 years or so, the stuff that's released pretty much proves that they did do it. They did. They were Soviet spies. He um, Julius, he definitely was involved in passing nuclear secrets to the Soviet Union, and it confirmed that he had a central role on this espionage. So they definitely did the thing that they were accused of. And then the question is like, what about the zeitgeist around their story? You, you, didn't, get, you didn't get into how they had access to this material, right? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. So here's what were they accused of doing and how did they do it? So involves like their whole lives all the people that they know and they were convicted of conspiracy to commit espionage and passing atomic secrets they're part of a spy ring that included americans and um some soviet citizens who shared military secrets and nuclear weapons um during world war ii julius worked in the army signal corps laboratory in new jersey where he had access to classified documents so that's where he kind of gets it from and she ended up being a secretary there as well and so she well her one of her like big things is typing up all these notes and typing up and copying everything and sent to the soviet union immediately he starts passing information to uh this to the soviet union um, via his wife and other members of the spy ring um and now world war ii is over and it's the cold war so the cold war lasted from 1945 do you know when the cold war ended Lars? If, um, if I had a guess, it had to be like the 70s, or no, 80, it would have been Reagan era, so like 84? It was 91. Oh, wow. Yeah, which feels late. That like I, that feels late for me because I was like alive during the Cold War. I feel like I've seen something that was a long, such a long time ago, but just like a little bit of time line. So World War One was the end of the Russian Empire, and then towards the end of World War One, there was a Russian Civil War that went from 1917 to 1922. And then 1922, it became the Soviet Union, which was the USSR. And then after it dissolved in 1991, it became 15 separate countries. And that's where like, we still have Russia now. So there's more to that, but that's kind of what we're looking at. Um, and Farz, what do you know about the Cold War? Like, what do you feel like when I say Cold War? I feel like it was an incredibly tense time that required a lot of people to like have cool heads and yeah um yeah. 
I, I I've seen a so my one of my favorite movies, my favorite like historical movies. That's kind of stupid to say that way. Is Thirteen Days, which uh, has Kevin Costner in it. <laughs> so you know it's gonna be good. But it's about it's about the thirteen days of the um, Cuban Missile Crisis and how mm-hmm. so many pieces were moving and so many people had to just not respond in anger or mm-hmm. irrationally and it's kind of a miracle we're not we didn't self-destruct at that time oh totally totally yeah i wrote the things i know like the bay of pigs so nuclear weapons being real close to america sputnik so people were kind of freaking out because you know the russians were the first to um put a satellite into space and people like went outside and they thought, they thought they could see it they were just like you know it was like the first one it was really scary um it was a race to the mute to the moon there was all this stuff in cuba so yeah exactly a lot of fear about nuclear war a lot of like hiding under desks and like at school and trying to figure out like what would happen if it happened so i also feel this is what i was going to say about living in joshua tree so i feel like very scared of nuclear war right now maybe irrationally but also maybe rationally and sometimes so i live next to a military base so one of like the biggest military bases in the country is like next door so so all the time i hear bombs going off so it'll shake my house and sometimes at night they'll do like a ton of military training and there'll be tons of bombs in a row and it'll be really loud and and shaky and i I can hear it so it definitely like makes it a target and then also because i'm kind of crazy and over and a little little paranoid like whenever the internet goes out or like the the power goes out i'm like this is it and i look to the to the north west and i look for the for the cloud over la because i'm like this is it i'll see the cloud from my house i probably would see the cloud from my house i would definitely see the flash when la gets nuked so um yeah you've really you've really done the math on this i did i, I mean i looked at it last night but i already think about it anyway so it's very tense and i feel tense right now thinking about it and it it's like mostly just me it's not like everywhere over the media like it was during the cold war people were like really really afraid of this so, so you think you're in New York. It's a very, very tense time. It's a Cold War. Things are scary. The World World War II just ended, but it didn't like end everything. And so Julius and Ethel, during this time, they're just living their lives. They have two sons. If you saw them like out on the town, you wouldn't think twice about them. And a lot of it is, is still speculation, like what they did. But again, like I said, they did it. They were spies. Uh, I watched the dot in the dock with a granddaughter. You know, where she was like, "I wish that like, they could be um, exonerated, but they're not." So Julius becomes involved in the Communist Party. It's believed that in 1942, so they've been married for a couple of years, is when he made contact with Soviet intelligence ag- intelligence agents and started to pass secrets. Some of the things that he is accused of doing sharing secrets with spies and one cool thing that they did is they would be like okay you have to meet your like the spy fars you know in this place so they would take a jello box and cut it in half in like a weird way and then you would take half of it and then they would give the other half to the person you're supposed to meet and you would know it was them when your jello boxes matched up so you got to just keep going up to people with jello boxes and yes. like tap the jello box and see yes yes that seems a little bit suspicious but <laughs> that's how you know you're talking to the right person like the right the right person on the other end um he shared thousands of documents about jet fighters and missiles like all those things so during this time like right after world war ii especially we were still and during world war ii we were still allies with the soviet union but we weren't sharing secrets so like during world war ii you know we were um you know we were friends but um also like 
after World War II ends, then the Soviet Union stops being an ally. Um, and as a child of the 80s, you know, which is the Cold War, apparently, I just learned now, I always pictured, you know, Stalin and the Russians as the bad guys. And so I was always, I was surprised when, you know, to see the pictures of him and FDR and Churchill together, you know? I think this was one of those, um, the enemy of my enemy. Yeah, absolutely. Things. I don't think that they actually wanted to be on friendly terms. I think it was like, we got to defeat Germany. So let's just yes. get it together. Yes. Um, there are some fun stories of like Churchill and FDR going to Russia to, or like the USSR to, to meet with Stalin. And when they uh, get there, Stalin's like, come and stay in our nicest castle. And it was like awful. And Churchill's like freezing and like in his underwear, trying to find like vodka, you know, just like that. That sounds delightful. That thing could be fun. <laughs> but, that, 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 sounds, that sounds like it could be a, a little movie comedy yes. show. Yes, I think that, I mean, for better or worse, I, I do I would like a comedy of Churchill just like running around in his underwear because he did that a lot. <laughs> I think that could be delightful to watch. Um, so now, so now like when, when he starts actually passing this stuff, we're actually in the Cold War with the Russians. So they're definitely like the, the enemies at this point. And another big part of the story is that Ethel's brother was actually working on the Manhattan Project in Los Alamos. So he was like, in it with like the the creation of the nuclear bombs. So in 1947, the um, FBI begins investigating them and other card-carrying communists for suspected espionage. They were arrested in 1950 and charged with conspiracy to commit espionage. David Greenglass, who's Ethel's brother who worked at the Manhattan Project, is arrested first and then just rats out everybody. And David Greenglass lives for a long time he dies in like 2004 so he definitely like sold out his fellow spies so that he would get a lighter sentence and in 1951 the rosenbergs are tried and found guilty of espionage so when they go through their things and find all the things that they that they shared with the soviets they do find um a cross section of the fat man bomb which is a bomb that was dropped on on hiroshima and then also in the documentary the granddaughter she's like she sees that picture in the National Archives and she's like, oh my gosh, like there's no way that the Soviets could have made a thing from this is one little picture, you know? And you're like, no, I feel like any nuclear secrets sharing is bad. Yeah, like there's not a gray line. Yeah, there's no, there's no like, oh, this is, this doesn't seem like a big deal. Like, no, it's a big deal that they even had that connection at all. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's a big deal. So they're sent sentenced to death, and it's a big cultural moment because actually the Rosenbergs are the only people to be um, executed for espionage during technically peacetime, and so it was like it was a Cold War, but it wasn't like an actual like during the like, World War where people were executed like you know kind of a lot. So it's a big cultural moment. Some people are really really mad at them for sharing these secrets, and I'm mad too. Like I get it. Some people think they're innocent, and some people is like. How mad are we that we need martyrs? Is the punishment equal to the crime? Was there a crime? Did the brother throw them under the bus? So they look so nice. So there's so many things that people are, you know, going back and forth upon. But, you know, they did it and they were guilty. So it also comes up. Do you ever read The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath? No. So it's like a book about like a woman who's depressed. It's very there's a lot more to it sure but she also thinks about the rosenbergs a lot and so during in the beginning of the book she's like reading the paper and she sees that they've been um they've been executed and it kind of brings up this feeling of isolation that could happen to anyone so that is kind of like the cultural feeling is like well anyone could be convicted of being a spy like it could be anyone it could be your neighbor you know kind of like 
making people more suspicious of each other as well. I don't know. You just look at your W-2. Does it say Los Alamos nuclear bunker on it? Like, if it right. doesn't, then you're probably not likely. Totally. I was, I was wondering, Taylor, is any, like, given the time period that we're in, was there any hints of, like, maybe anti-Semitism played into the severity of their punishment? You know what? I didn't look that up, but, but possibly. Because it's definitely that also, like, another form of, like, being the other, you know. I was going to say, and... there's so many otherisms here. Like, yeah. you're a communist, that's otherism. You're Jewish, that's otherism. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, totally. Yeah. You know, I, I, I would imagine probably, yeah. but I don't, but I don't, didn't, like, read that specifically. But that's a good call out and a good question. Um. So in 1953, they're executed in the electric chair at Sing Sing Prison in New York. Do you know what happens when you're executed via the electric chair? So your heart stops. Um, I'm not sure what the mechanics and physiology of that are, but I think that, that that's how you ultimately are killed. Yeah. Did you did you ever see or read The Green Mile? Yes. So remember how like he like doesn't do the sponge yeah. on the guy's head and then it like catches on fire. So like a wet sponge needs to be involved. So the electric chair was first used in the United States in the late 19th century. So it involves strapping a person to a chair, electrodes attached to their head and legs, and then administering a powerful electric shock. So the wet sponge stops it from catching on fire, which is crazy. And so there's just, there's usually two shocks. When the first switch is flipped, an electric current goes through your body, which causes the muscles to con- contract, and then you pass out. So it just like shocks you, and you pass out. And then the second switch is the one that like kills all your organs. Like you said, it kills your heart, kills all your organs, and then you die. It can also, you know, sometimes people you'll get like severe burns and other injuries like while it's happening. Like it's not, it's not a not. It's a very cruel way to die, and. Julius's went fine as far as electric 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 electrocution goes, but Ethel's did not. So she actually had to be shocked four times before she died, and people saw smoke coming out of her head. So um, it was pretty awful. The first jolt didn't render her unconscious. It took a couple more to end her life. Um, they were not the electrodes were not properly pa- properly placed. So the electricity, rather than going to her vital organs, went to her head. Uh. So it's an awful way to go, and. So it was pub- publicized that it was a botched execution, which definitely made it made like the debate even stronger as to be like, why are we executing these people? Why are we even doing cap- um, capital punishment? All of that. So after their death, it was a big thing, and the questions are like, what did they share? Do we kill spies this publicly? Um, I'm sure we do, but you know, maybe it's not always in the news. It seems so normal. Did they do it? So. It's not all 100% and, like, it's not very clear everything that they did do, which makes sense because you don't want to, like, put the spy secrets out. But it's just, like, these people were spies. So in around 2005, the National Archives and Records Administration released a portion of the grand jury testimony. So it, it shed some new light on the case and gave us some more details. So it did confirm that Ethel knew what she was doing when she typed up the documents. So when she typed up and copied the secrets that Julius was stealing from from work and her brother was stealing from um, Los Alamos, she knew what she was doing. Um, It confirmed that Julius was a big part of a spy ring. Um, Their code names were found in Soviet cables and the key witness was Ethel's brother. So he's the one that threw everybody under the bus and like told on everybody and got them them executed. So that makes it all true. 
And then some of the questions that like I kind of want to end with is like, so the red flags are like, they were spies and they were sending secrets to the Soviet Union, which was bad. But they believed they were doing a good thing because they believed in this like utopian idea of like socialism and communism. And they thought that, that was happening. So were they just like people who believed in a perfect society? Were they traitors? Were they scapegoats for, you know, this Cold War era thing? And I, in the end, I think you kind of believe what what you want to believe. I think they were kids when they started. They believed in a perfect society, but obviously crossed the line when they shared secrets. And a question that I had like late last night thinking about this is, you know, what is okay spying? If you want a better world and you're spying for a better world, like, is that justifiable but once you open the door to nuclear secrets then i'm like then that's a hard no because i don't want anyone to know anything about nuclear secrets i don't want anyone to do it at all um i wish that there was never any nuclear anything so um that's where i think like for me i'm like okay well i don't know if the public execution essentially was you know the right the right thing to do but also i'm like they definitely did you know a bad thing um whether they knew they were doing it or not. You know what I mean? I, yeah, I, um, what I was thinking of was that in a lot of situations, the um, outcomes are very directly tied to the actions. Mm -hmm. So for example, like with Lee Boyd Malvo or with John Muhammad getting executed, it's like, that was directly tied to you did a really, really bad thing. Many mm -hmm. people died because of it. In this case, it's so far removed. Think of all the things that have to happen for the bad outcomes to actually be realized. Like you have yes. to steal the material, you have to copy it, you have to translate it, you have to send it, you have to tie jello cups together, yeah. hand it off. They have to go out and backwards engineer it, develop it. And then all of a sudden, th then the bad outcome can be realized. But the outcome is so, the gravitas of that outcome is so heavy that mm -hmm. it kind of justifies the result. Yeah, totally. So like, exactly. So like the things that you're doing aren't you're not shooting someone from the back of a car you know like you're not like doing things like like that but you what you're doing is directly going to affect no matter how long it takes the possibility of like global annihilation yeah you know and like this and then that obviously like then we have this tense cold war for 40 years and we have today when there's like I just like hit my microphone. We have today when there's like balloons and you know, you know, whatever all this stuff means, but it's it's pretty scary. And I and I think the Rosenbergs had like a direct um effect on on getting getting those secrets and getting that stuff over to to the to the Soviet Union. So um it's a scary thing that they did and then whether or not they like realized the global implications, I think that yeah, you're right. Like they did a bad thing. Yeah, I um so I, for, I, again, I don't, me and Taylor don't talk about what we researched ahead of time. Like I had long ago looked on down this spy rabbit hole. And I remember thinking this same thought about this guy named Robert Hansen. I don't know if you've ever heard of him before, mm -mm. but he was an FBI intelligence analyst and he did the same thing. He passed on, um, I don't know what, it was a long time ago. I don't remember what exactly he passed on, but I remember reading about his punishment. I was like, I was like, at first I was like, man, that's heavy he got yeah he, he was um put in adx supermax in florence which i don't know if you know much about that but it's a terrifying place it sounds like like that's where that's the 9-11 people ended up that's where mm -hmm. timothy mcveigh ted kaczynski um el chapo like it is you are a dead human 
walking yeah there. like it is mm-hmm. the worst of the worst punishments and yeah at the time i was like i was like that's so heavy extreme but, yeah but then you look at like again the downstream impact of the decisions that guy made and it's like kind of makes sense yeah kind of makes sense and like maybe he didn't even know that, that imagine that that was going to be the outcome yeah maybe. Know? but like those little things and like they they snowball into potentially being a really 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 bad thing yeah 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 so hopefully this 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 episode gets published tomorrow and we're not annihilated by nuclear war but we'll see it could be today wait how are they, why i'm sitting under my desk how are they how are they doomed to fail um i think because they started to they started with this idealistic view of the world and, and being better but they didn't have all the details so maybe it, the doomed to fail is not knowing all the details because they thought that so the soviet union was this perfect place when it wasn't which we know and they were very idealistic and so they just went down this path of trying to get somewhere that was impossible it was impossible to you know have a perfect communist country and it's impossible to you know have a better world with having nuclear secrets shared you know like keeping nuclear secrets hostage and like kind of looming that above everybody i think is is not a way to peace, but I think that they were doomed and like they they really wanted a peaceful world and they start, they thought the way to do it was to kind of equalize this threat. And um, once they kind of did that, there was no turning back. Yeah, you know, and they you know they died on the same day. Their their poor kids ended up in like homes and they're you know just they're like my mom was a normal mom, you know. But you're like, well, she wasn't. She wasn't. Yeah, yeah, kids. If you think your ideology is worth doing anything for chill out a little bit for real that's a hundred percent yes it'll all be okay like the pendulum (laughs) always swings i know that everything seems like the biggest deal possible yes it always always swings yes yes and if someone starts to recruit you to doing things that are like secret then like you're probably gonna be in trouble yeah and you should calm down yeah yeah. So enjoy your glass of vodka. Um, oh, I know I need, I do need some vodka. I'll buy some for when I do see that mushroom cloud. It's 9.31 a.m. over there, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, it is. I don't have any vodka, but I can go buy some. Good, good. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you, Taylor, for your story. Oh, thank you, Fars. For... I'm glad, I think those tied together. I, I think we're talking about, you know, big things and, and why people do do go off the edge maybe we it's should talk about what we're gonna maybe we should discuss our topics before we do them we could do that i mean yeah but like i don't want to change my topic because i just can't research two things in a week yeah that's fair that's fair. we'll figure it out, we'll figure um, it out. but thanks everyone for listening and thank you for your feedback and thank you for your reviews on on apple podcasts please do that if you haven't already Please tell people. I'm trying. I'm trying to tell everyone that I know, but please tell more people. Email us at doomed to fail pod at gmail.com. If you have any ideas, follow on social media at doomed to fail pod. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks, Fars. I hope you feel better. I hope so too. I'm gonna go ahead and kill the recording. Okay. Great.